Hey guys, this is Tyler LaFoy with Fluent Grace Podcast, and this is Fluent Grace Preaches. Every now and then, Tim and I will preach in a congregational setting, and so um, this is some specific teaching that we've shared with our home churches. And so if you want some deeper theological content, this is your place. And so we, uh, we're glad that you're listening, and as always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out by email at fluentgracepodcast at gmail.com. See you later. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, verses 44 through 66. So if you have your Bible, go on ahead um, and turn that way. Um, it's hard to believe, um, but next week we will close out our year and a half, um, over a year and a half journey through the gospel of Matthew. It's been a rich time for um, me personally, and I feel like for our church as a whole. Um, so join us next week as we close out this um, amazing book that we've been journeying through together. Um, but for today, um, Matthew chapter 27, verses 44 through 66. Um, post tenebras looks, um, after darkness light. This was the heart cry of the Protestant reformers um, during the Reformation. And if you remember back during the 16th century, um, the Catholic Church across Europe had, um, had deserted the biblical gospel. Um, indulgences were being sold for the forgiveness of sin. Um, salvation was Jesus plus what you can do or what you can offer or in indulgences sake, what you can purchase. Um, the Pope was seen as the supreme authority and the mediator between God and man. And, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And it was a dark time for the church. Heresy and truth perversion um, were rampant, but by God's grace, He used a handful of people for light to burst forth during this dark time. And it gave way to the rediscovery of the biblical gospel post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. And so truths like um, sola scriptura, we, we get our truth through scripture alone. Um, and, and truths like salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. And so in today's text, I say all that to say, um, I believe that we see this phrase play out in even a more fuller sense than the Protestant Reformation. If the Reformation was the rediscovery of the biblical gospel, then today's text is the culmination or the crux of the gospel. Jesus' darkest moment, the darkest moment of human history, paves the way for believers' brightest hope. And so the first thing I want us to look at this morning is the darkest moment of human history, the Christ forsaken. Look at me in verse 45 through 49. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until about the ninth hour. And so first thing I want you to see is there's this physical darkness. So the time is between 12 to 3 p.m. So 12 to 3 p.m. in the Middle East, it shouldn't be dark. It should be hot and, and the sun beaming down. Uh, but in this moment, there's utter darkness in the land. The sun has hidden its face. The physical earth is folding under the such darkness of God's mourning over the great evil of His Son's suffering. 
And people want to talk about this moment of this cosmic chaos and, and all that's happening and say it was caused by either a solar eclipse or it was a sudden change in the atmospheric conditions and, and whatever it was, um, we, we want to know the details. And the, and the details aren't bad, but, but what I want you to see is the larger theological implications of what's taking place um, in this historical phenomenon. So we see this utter physical darkness, and this darkness is a sign of judgment. It's, 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 it's not just a judgment on the land and its people, but it's a judgment on Jesus. Because out of this physical darkness, spiritual darkness comes, and we see this cry of desolation, the darkest moment of human history, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is crying, Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see if whether Elijah will come to save him. And so, the world's outer darkness now corresponds with Jesus' inner darkness. And we see this mixture of this, this, this Hebrew and Aramaic mixture, this Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, where he cries out to the Lord. And it's a, it's, it's a, he's quoting Psalm, 20, verse, Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the bystanders listening, they mock Jesus in this moment. Listen, guys, he's calling the prophet Elijah, you know, the prophet that, that, that willed out of this earth and a flaming chariot up into heaven. That's who he's calling. He's calling him to see if he'll come and save him. But no, Jesus was not crying to any prophet. He was crying to his father. In this moment of spiritual darkness, this communion is fractured. This communion that we've seen play out in the Gospels, this, this communion of him seeking isolation and seeking this, um, this time to be with his heavenly father, this, 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 this intimate communion that he had with him is fractured. The Son is forsaken. The Father turns His back on the Son. Remember back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, at the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. The heavens open up. Jesus is being baptized. And the Father looks at His Son and says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And now at the culmination, at the crux of Christ's ministry, what his, his mission, what He came to do to save sinners, the Son who was Beloved and well-pleased, but now becomes the Son who is despised for our sake, out of love for us. And this is what Martin Luther coins as the great exchange in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake He, being the Father, made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. To feel the weight of this moment, the sun's forsakenness, the darkest moment of human history. And in this moment, Jesus became our disgust. 
Jesus became our wickedness. Jesus became our shame. He became our evil thoughts. He became our one look at the website behind closed doors. He became our gossip. He became our jealousy. He became our envy. He became our strife. He became our hatred. He became our racism. He became our failure to love our, our wives and our spouses. He, he became our sickness. He became our failure to love our kids well. He became our lies. He became our failures as friends. He became our sin. And for the first time ever, ever, this intimate communion with his father is fractured because the Holy Father, who is, cannot be in the presence of sin, he had turned his back on the Son who became our disgust. The communion is fractured for our sake. And the Son's deepest suffering seals our sonship as believers. And so, the crux of Christ's suffering, this is the crux of Christ's suffering. Praise the Lord for it. Why? Because without Christ's forsakenness, there is no forgiveness of sin. So just think, I want you to think for a minute. If Jesus wasn't forsaken, the redemptive nature of the gospel is not true for us. Romans 8 is not a glory-filled scripture for us anymore. Our spiritual blessings in Christ that we read about at the beginning of Ephesians are not true of us anymore. The gospel is not good news for believers. Why? Because if forsakenness has, hadn't happened, then the redemptive nature of the gospel that we find in the pages of Scripture would not be true. We would still be in condemnation. We would still be separated. That We would not be adopted into the family of God. We would, st we would, not, we would not be His kids. We would not be co-heirs with Christ. There would be no redemption. There would be no hope. So do not miss the weight of this moment, church. Don't miss the weight of it. We'll never understand the height and the magnitude of God's grace until we come to grips with the damning nature of our depravity. Our sin causes heavy and huge consequences. And so for the Father to see us as His blemish-free bride that we're described in Revelation about, Jesus was forsaken as the tainted wretch on our behalf. Jesus is forsaken. <laughs> oh, just, just, just think about this. Galatians chapter 4. It says this, <laughs> talking about our spiritual adoption. For the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, so that we could cry, Abba, Father, with Him. And so... Christ hadn't been forsaken, then that wouldn't be true. And so Jesus forsaken signed the adoption papers for us as believers. And so the lamb in this moment, think about this moment, Passover is happening. The lamb who gave physical miracles, remember back with me as we've studied through Matthew, physical sight to the blind, he, 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 gave, he made the lame walk. He, he, he fed the multitudes. He gave life to the dead. 
And so these, in this moment, these physical miracles give way to new spiritual realities for us. Our spiritual narrative is being rewritten in this moment. And through Jesus' substitutionary death, these, these miracles have new weight to them. Not only did he give spiritual, he, he gives sight to the blind man, but the spiritual blinders are removed off of our eyes through this moment. He causes us to walk in the newness of life. He nourishes us through his words and his commands. He, he gives life to our stank dead hearts, church, spiritual realities in this moment. And it's only through the son forsaken do we have a seat at the table in the kingdom of God. And so, don't miss the huge realities of this dark moment. Look at me in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And when the time came, Jesus yielded up his spirit to the Father, and he cries out, It is finished in the other Gospels. So what's finished in this moment? The forsakenness is complete. If the forsakenness had not yet been complete, then it would have been completely futile for the Lord to lift up His soul to, in the hands of His Father. The atonement would not be finalized, but in His proclamation of, his, of it is finished and Him yielding up his, his spirit to His Father, the atonement is final in this moment. And that paves the way to the bright hope that we have as believers. And two supernatural moments play out. Look with me in verses 51 through 53. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so two supernatural moments that, that give way to our brightest hope as believers. Number one, the veil is torn. And we know that this is a supernatural moment because these things are huge. They, were, they would have been around 80 foot high. And so in this moment, these hand-woven tapestries who would not normally just be able to just be ripped in two are torn from top to bottom. And so which veil is this? There's multiple veils in the temple. So, so which one is this talking about? Is it the inside veil that I normally would have thought about um, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies? And so keep in mind that in the temple there was, there was the holy place and then the holy, and there was the holy of holies, and there was a, a veil that separated the two. And so the sanctuary, and inside the holy of holies was the sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where only the high priest could enter um, only once a year on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the people. And they would actually tie bells around the neck of the high priest and they would tie a rope around his leg because if he entered in with, with any hint of sin in him, he would be struck dead and they would have to drag him out of there. A super um, exclusive place and, and where he would go in and he would take the, the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the atonement of the sin of the people. Or was it the outside veil that would have hung outside and would have been a huge veil that would have been outside of the temple that would have separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews? 
Keep in mind that, that these two people groups were separated. The, the Jews were God's people, His chosen people, and these Gentile dogs, they weren't of the, the, the lineage, they weren't of the birthright, they weren't of the, the people group. And, and at the temple, these, these two groups were separated for worship. And so I don't know which veil it was. We don't really know. And honestly, it doesn't really matter because in this veil tearing, it signifies two rich realities about the temple for us. And those are that the judgment is over and that salvation is open for all. And so after Jesus breathes his last breath, the temple in Jerusalem becomes a desolate house like he talks about in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. And the and it's because the true high priest, Jesus, had appeared. And the true Lamb of God during this Passover had been slain. And the true mercy seat was being displayed at length on the cross. The true Lamb being poured out for the mercy of sinners. And, and so in this moment, there's, there's no more need for an earthly high priest. There's, there's no more need for a mercy seat. There's no more need for the sprinkling of blood. There's no more need for an offering of incense on the Day of Atonement. Jesus' death brings final judgment for sinners to the temple. It's all over. However, while closing of, the closing of one door in Jesus' death, it, it gives way to the opening of another door. And now through Jesus and Jesus alone, the whole world is invited into the presence of God. It's all open. Salvation is open for everyone. And so both the restrictions on access to God and the distinction between both Jew and Gentile have been abolished in this moment. And this gives rich meaning to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 that says, And those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's how we can gather today in 2020 and, and worship as a part of the family. And so, now it's not just the high priest and him alone who can enter in the Holy of Holies and lay his hands on the head of the innocent lamb to find forgiveness for the people. But it's now for all people. It's both for Jew and Gentile. It's both for ministers and it's for laity. It's for young and it's for old. It's for male and it's for female. And we can all obtain direct access to God by faith. And this is true of you right now in 2020, sitting on your couch, sitting in your car, or wherever you are. You have direct access to the Father because of the Son's forsakenness. That's rich grace, church. Salvation, judgment is over, and salvation is open to all. So that's the first bright hope for us. And the second is this, the earthquakes and the walking dead. <laughs> look, look, let's look at that one more time. And, and, and the curtain tore, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so, before Jesus dies, the earth turns black, and after Jesus dies, the earth quakes. And so, the climax of these cataclysmic signs, this is the climax of these cataclysmic signs. And though it is not the, it's not just the ground shaking and the rocks breaking, it's the tombs opening and these real resurrected human beings walking around Jerusalem. 
This is, this is wild. The Jews didn't bury people in the ground, but in tombs, they buried them in tombs similar to what Jesus would have been buried would have been buried in, which would have been like a hollowed out space in a rock, and they would have rolled a stone in front of it to close it. And we don't know whether this uh, resurrection that's talked about here in the text was one uh, of, like Jesus's, of, of a full glorified bodily resurrection. We don't know um, if it was that, um, like we'll experience one day in our final resurrection, or if it was more like Jesus's friend Lazarus. Um, who was given a second term on life here on earth, but who ultimately died again. Um, so we don't, know, we don't know which resurrection type it was, but despite all the details, what I think Matthew's trying to tell us is to open our eyes to the resurrection power of Jesus' death. And so in his death, Jesus removes the sting from the grave so that death is not punishment, for sin, but a transition into a richer reality, namely the kingdom of God for believers. So in other words, Jesus' death is a resurrecting death. The death are revived by his dying. And as Jesus, is, as Jesus passes from death to life, I'm sorry, so as Jesus passes from life to death, believers pass from death to life. And that's the point of this resurrected people in this text. So death doesn't have the final say over the believer. Death is just a transition into a richer reality with really into the presence of Christ himself for us. And so that gives us great hope in this moment. So the judgment is over for believers. Salvation is open to all. And we are promised a resurrection. And so that is our great hope in this darkest moment. And so I I want you to catch something here. When Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he yields up his spirit, I don't want you to think that for a second that Jesus isn't sovereign over every single moment that is playing out in this text. The world is in utter chaos, but grace is very much calculated. The dark sky, the veil tearing, the, the earth is shaking, the rocks are breaking, the dead is resurrecting, but this is no shock to our Lord. Our King sealed defeat that day over our two greatest enemies, sin and death. Sin and death died this day. And after all of his sufferings, whether it be his physical sufferings, his beatings, his lashing, the crown of thorns, the nails, the weight of his body on the crucifix, the blood loss, the, the, the struggling to breathe, or maybe it was the mental sufferings, the mockery, the desertion of his followers his, and his friends, or maybe it was the spiritual suffering, which was the worst of all, the desertion of the Father in his forsakenness. After all of this, Jesus dies victorious. He is victorious. The world is in chaos, but grace is calculated. He conquers the world, the darkness and the earthquake. He conquers sin. The veil is torn. Judgment is over and salvation is open to all who would believe. Jesus conquers death. The resurrected bodies proclaim it. And this is the power of the cross. This is why it, this is what stirred Peter to write in 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, verse 18 for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous 
for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That is the power of the cross. Calvin, John Calvin put it this way. He says, in the cross of Christ, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross of Christ. Post tenebras lux, after darkness, great light. And so what is our response to this church? We see a proper response, verses 54 through 61. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to them, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the mother and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And so the first response I think we see is the Roman centurion's awe-inspired confession. Keep in mind, the first post-crucifixion Christian confession doesn't come from an apostle. It doesn't come from Jesus' mother Mary. It doesn't come from any of his close family or his friends. It doesn't come from the high priest. It comes from a high-ranking centurion and the soldiers who were with him at his crucifixion. The ones who put him on the cross came the first post-Christian confession. And we can debate in this moment whether their confession was just a momentary mouthing of truth, like a sudden impulse because of what's going on, or if it was a lasting lived out conviction. And honestly, I don't think it's our place um, to, to debate their sincerity in the text. These soldiers might have had an imperfect faith in Jesus, but even imperfect faith in Jesus is faith in Jesus. A mustard seed faith is better than no faith. And so I think what we see here is one of the most beautiful things that we can ever see, and that's a change of heart. And what they confessed was a good enough confession for God because they were filled with awe. And this is what the cross of Christ should continually, re <laughs> continually rebirth in our hearts is a continual, awe-inspiring uh, moment for us. That's what the cross does in the hearts of believers. Martin Luther says this, talking about this moment, the blood of Christ not only awakens dead bodies, but also sinners' souls. It stirs our hearts for worship. And so the first response we see is an awe-inspired confession. Truly, this was the Son of God. And then the next proper response I think we can see in this man named Joseph of Arimathea and his risk-taking servanthood. Look at me in verse 57 through 61. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his, new, in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite 
the tomb. And so a few things I, to see the magnitude of what's happening in the text that you need to know. Joseph was Jewish, and we know that from Luke chapter 23, verse 50, that he was a well-respected member of the Sanhedrin. And this Sanhedrin was this uh, political um, and judicial council headed up by the high priest himself. This was a big deal to be a part of. Um, and so we know from Luke chapter 23, verse 51, that, that Joseph didn't consent with the condemnation, uh, the council's condemnation of Jesus. And so he's already stood up to them once. And so it took great courage for this highly distinguished, it says that he was highly distinguished in this council, for this, it took great courage for this highly distinguished council member of the Sanhedrin to go by himself um, to Pilate in order to ask for the body of a convicted and crucified criminal. Don't miss the weight of this situation. And so keep in mind that puts, um, keep in mind these people that put Jesus to death view, view Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea as in their club. He's one of the bros. He's in this, he's in this, uh, this, he's in this council and this, in this club. And so what are these members? I mean, there's like a million of questions that, that could be going through his head. Well, what would the members of this council think about this? Would they resent him? Would they, would they hate him? Would they disown him? Would they kick him out of the club? What would Pilate think of this request? Would, would, Pilate could have charged Joseph with siding with the enemy for taking his body. This is a very bold move on Joseph's part here. And I don't want you to miss that. Um, by going to Pilate, he risked his reputation and perhaps even his life. And not only this, but he leverages his riches for Christ's sake by putting Christ in his own tomb. And to take it even a step farther, preparing a body for burial during this time was the work for a slave. Joseph didn't get a slave to do this. Joseph did it himself. So we see a rich man prepared Jesus' body for a proper and honorable burial. He dirtied his clean hands during Passover, nonetheless, when touching a Jesus' dead body would have been considered unclean. And he served the servant of servants who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And church, this is the transformative power of the gospel. Grace redeems us from our past, but it just doesn't redeem us from our past. It transforms us in the present. And grace does not leave us the same. So to close this out, what does this text calls us to? If you're watching this and you're an unbeliever, I would, I would beg with you to consider Jesus. Jesus was forsaken so that wayward people like you and like me could be brought near and be, <laughs> become a part of the family. And this, the reality of the confession from the Roman soldiers who crucified him could be true for you as well. Truly, this is the Son of God. And I would beg with you if, this, if the Spirit is pressing in on your, on your heart, convicting you of your sin, to repent of your sin, to trust in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension on your behalf. 
Submit your life to Him as Lord. Today, today could be the day of salvation as you are listening to this on your couch or in your car or wherever you are. Believer, what does this cause us to? Jesus condemned, you are cherished. Jesus separated, your sonship is sealed. This causes us for all inspired worship. And it causes us to, to this gospel conversation to be, the, to be the fragrance of our lips with our neighbor and our coworkers and everyone who we come into contact with. It causes us to take risk for His sake. It causes us to leverage our resources. It causes us to give our lives away. Why? Because He first gave His life away for you and for me. Remember this at the table when you take communion with every bite you take and every sip you take. Remember that he had to be forsaken. He was forsaken. His body was broken. He was forsaken. His blood was poured out so that you could have a seat at the table in the kingdom of God. Remember it. Every sip you take and every bite you take, remember it. And let it birth joy within you. And I'm going to close out our time with finishing out the, reading out the text. Chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to him, them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made, this, made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Pilate's response is just comical. You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. The task that Pilate gave those soldiers is the equivalent to me handing you a teacup and telling you to go to the base of Niagara Falls and capture the falls in that teacup. Friday is dark, but Sunday's coming. Post Tenebras looks. After darkness, light. Bob Goff says it this way. Darkness fell, his friends scattered. Hope seemed lost, but heaven just started counting to three.